This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views or guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a really interesting show talking about AI, the hot topic across Wall Street, but also in the academics. We have a professor from Morton. Beyond Professor Siegel here joining us here in the studio live at Huntsman Hall. Welcome to Behind the Markets, Professor Daniel Rock. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited uh, to get to chat with you guys today. We're also going to have my colleague, Christopher Gennady, who's Global Head of Research and the Register Rep of Foresight Fund Services, also joining us for a discussion. Uh, Chris focuses a lot on AI and thematics, and uh, he'll, he'll join us in the second half. But Professor, it was a little bit of a quiet week. You've been talking about jobless claims. Maybe that's the key thing. You want to highlight for the markets uh, before we turn to the AI discussion, but what's your take on recent uh, market activity here? Yeah. Uh, again, the third uh, week where jobless claims were above expectation, elevated, uh, there, there was a little bit of distortion in a couple of months, but there's no question that we've ratcheted up. Now, we have two more initial claims before we get the job, uh, the job reports, the Friday job reports. So, We'll see if that really does impact, but we, we have ratcheted up on those jobless claims. Don't look at continuing claims. They, they are very distorted by, um, uh, faulty seasonal adjustments. Um, but the, the jobless claims have ratcheted, uh, upward. Um, the other data, uh, uh, today's uh, global manufacturing data came in, uh, uh, quite weak. Um, service sector, okay, but manufacturing, um, has come back down to its, uh, December lows since then. Um, uh, so there's a little bit concern about, uh, that softening. Let me talk about Powell on the Hill. I didn't talk about it last time and, and people said, why? Because the truth of the matter is he got no information. I mean, he, he between the meeting and, and being uh, up there uh, before Congress, there was nothing that really came out. And obviously, he just gave the same lines as before. He anticipates, uh, he repeated that members anticipate two more. He's on board with that. There was no new information uh, on prices or anything else. Uh, so we just really heard a repeat of, of what he said before. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's not uh, at this point backing down. Now, again, don't think that things can't change his mind and everyone else's mind as they develop. Uh, we are going to get um, the PCE um, this coming week. I don't put a lot of stock into it. First of all, it still has that backward-looking um, housing data, and I'm going to talk about housing in just a second. Um, and uh, and it, it can really put, be put together by looking at the, the, uh, the uh, producer price index as well, the consumer price index. So. You know, there's, there's, the, it's really not a lot of new information in that, uh, in that PCU report. Now, what might be interesting, you know, coming up, um, uh, next week, first of all, we're going to get the money supply, but it looks like it's going to drop again for the 12th consecutive month. Uh, but we're also going to get, um, housing. And I want to talk about housing because one thing that did surprise me was a blowout on housing starts. Um, that we got earlier this week, a way above expectations. Now, um, there is a housing quote shortage, if you want to call it. Um, um, and, and there's a lot of demand for housing. Uh, let me, let me mention the following, but prices up 50% in three years. Um, with mortgage rates tripling, which means the mortgage payments when you do amortization are about doubling. So you double and up 50. It means to actually own the average house in the United States is, is three, uh, is three times as expensive 
today as it was three years ago. That is one of the sharpest increases in history. So, yes, new homes are being built. And it's going to cost people three times as much. And that's a big part of their budget. Uh, how are we going to keep that consumption splurge that everyone talks about going in that sort of environment? Um, now, again, there's a big lag between housing starts and moving in and selling them and all the rest. And lots can, you know, that's uh, going in there. But I just want people to think about the fact that to own and occupy your home, a new home today, average new home, not, you know, million dollar new home, average new home today is three times as expensive um, uh, as it was um, if you take an 80% standard mortgage as it was three years ago. That is that that is huge. So that has to be considered when uh, when we uh, look forward. Um, uh, again, uh, I'll, uh, let me mention we're going to get the case Shiller, as you know, comes out on the um, on the last Tuesday of every month. This is the first month where the analysts who, who as well as I, have been surprised. The case Shiller housing index has been actually increased last month. They're anticipating another increase. Now we're still quite down on a year-over-year basis. Um, but still an increase in the FHFA and um, federal housing does predict an increase. So we've gotten a little bit better sentiment in that housing area. Um, uh, still nowhere up to where we were two years ago. Um, we'll see whether the case shower actually does go up or not. It is a modest increase, by the way. It's nothing like the you know one and a half percent to two percent increases that we're getting in 2021. Um, but it is a modest increase. I will be looking at that quite a bit. As you know, we keep current data on housing, and um, uh, that filters into our current CPI and CPI core data. So this is um, with the housing being 40% of CPI core, this is going to be a very, very important uh, piece of data uh, coming forward. Of course, the following week, and I'm just going to mention this, we will be talking next week, but then we get the jobs report uh, and everything like that, um, which will which will be very important. Um, so uh, again, not much data that's new. The biggest surprise is housing starts. Um, there is a shortage of housing. There's a sectoral shift towards increased demand for housing, um, and housing has just become enormously more expensive um, than it was um, three years ago. Um, so with that, I would love to ask Dan some questions. That'd be great. <laughs> we, we hosted a big conference call yesterday with Chris Canati Chris and Professor Siegel leading the discussion on the AI implications. Professor, I loved your, your, your opening comment about what is artificial about the intelligence. It's really the, the machine learning uh, as, yeah. as, as uh, you know, real intelligence. I, I thought that was interesting, a lot of things, but I'll, I'll let you kick it off to the professor on what you're interested in here. Yeah, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think we should call it machine intelligence and human intelligence or machine learning and human learning. I, I, the word artificial seems artificial. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm going to get down. You've done some great work on productivity and all that. But for all, you know, a lot of people listening, especially to me, are very interested in a little bit more immediate impact. And, and this will re regard, um, I, I, you're going to be, you're going to, I know you're going to be speculating a little bit here and I want you to do that. Don't be, <laughs> okay. don't be afraid to do that. Uh, um, is what, this is my first question, is what we are seeing today with AI much faster or will be implemented and change things much faster than all the other technological developments that we have all seen past the years? Is this qualitatively different in speed um, and scope? than what we've seen in the past? That's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, and one where it's, uh, it's difficult to know the answer for sure. So, you know, I'll be a standard two-handed economist here on, uh, on my response. So uh, an argument for why this might move faster, um, at least in some domains, like with the launch of ChatGPT and related technologies, we've just seen 
a massive explosion in adoption. That was like one of the fastest, if not the fastest adoption of like a consumer application of all time. Um, you know, it's uh, it, for, for many low hanging fruit kinds of applications. Yeah. I think we're seeing very quick diffusion. On the other hand, um, my co-authors and I uh, and, and others have argued that this technology is what you'd call a general purpose technology. And we can get into what that means a little later, but because of how pervasive the applications are, because of how much complementary investment you have to do to unlock the gains, um, my instinct is to say that this is similar to some of those old mm -hmm. uh, digital technologies that will diffuse um, to their final potential over over decades. Um, I don't think the story is is played out yet, and I yeah. I'm excited to see all the well, that, cool things people was, innovate with. Yeah, that was exactly my sentiment. Is that my feeling? And I'm nowhere near an expert like you are, and or. Or Chris on, on on AI is 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 you know I don't see this as being all I mean it's it's amazing but is it qualitatively different now let me follow up on something you said besides the record rate of adoption of course it was really easy it doesn't cost anything unless you get the upgraded and and mm -hmm. you know we're, we're all online to do that um, have you been were, were you I mean as an expert were you surprised at what a GPT could do, um, um, has, has that, or, or what the capabilities have been in the, don't forget this, this enthusiasm in the stock market mm -hmm. really started with GPT, which I guess was late last year. And then, uh, it got extremely accelerated because of what happened in NVIDIA and its earnings and its projection on it, right. uh, it exploded. Those two things are provided the momentum that we see here. Um, um, you probably knew about chat, uh, chat GPT way before there was finally launched. Um, was there, is there anything that you saw that came out in the last five months that even surprised you in terms of what this technology could do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you had asked me, I don't know, four or five years ago, if I thought that something like this would be possible today, I would have said, I, I think you're nuts. Um, so there's, a there's definitely, a market shift in the capabilities of these models that I think caught many people, including me, by surprise. Um, some of the general applications of them, you know, did I think there would be eventually some sort of machine learning technology that could be deployed there? Yes. Uh, so there, there are some aspects of this that were a little bit predictable, but then um, I think what's most exciting to me and, and perhaps most surprising was the change in taste of these models. You know, you can generate thousands of texts from a generative model. Um, some of them will be nonsense. Some of them will be great. And um, the fact that by providing, you may have heard of reinforcement learning with human feedback um, or perhaps AI feedback, so-called uh, constitutional AI. Um, the fact that this feedback process can give taste to these models is very exciting and cool. So it's not just generate a thousand different versions of this text, but generate ones that are plausible that, you know, we can actually deploy and use. Um, that's, that's super cool and a bit surprising well, to me. Where do you see, what industry do you see this penetrating first? And, and, and also as a result, perhaps causing severe job losses or significant job losses, where, you know, if you, have, you know, with these new capabilities that are coming out, where, who do you see is really vulnerable, let's say within the next year, if anybody? Right. Um, in terms of, are we going to see huge job losses? Um, uh, or is this going to be just, again, a technological thing that is going to take uh, a long time to see job losses? And, and, and where would we, where do you think the vulnerable job losses will be? Right. So I would say on average, like throughout the economy, if this technology ends up looking like older ones, I, I don't anticipate large job loss. I think the the reports suggesting as much as 40% of, of occupations can be fully automated. Um, our evidence in our paper doesn't suggest that to be the case. Now, what we, what we measure across a few different projects is something called exposure, where we're talking about, well, you know, this task or the system might change. Um, you know, principally, we're looking at tasks. So you think of like a job as a bundle of tasks. Um, and I don't see a ton of jobs where, you know, AI is going to run the table and annihilate all the tasks and replace people. Um, so I'm less 
you know, say concerned about um, overall job loss. So we might find pockets where, you know, someone's displaced and, um, you know, that has happened historically as well. Um, but more costly adjustment to a new paradigm of how we do, you know, we use technology. So places, I've got my, my little chart up here right now, um, places where we, we see higher exposure or places where you're processing information. So the data processing um, industry or financial services, insurance carriers, um, securities trading, uh, these sorts of places, advertising. On the other hand, um, you know, social assistance or uh, say wood products manufacturing, um, yeah, there's a support activities, various kinds. These things are, are less exposed. Now, of course, one could interpret if these can be replaced, the profits of the companies would go up because they don't need to pay workers. So, I mean, in terms of <laughs> investors, if they can identify those firms or industries that can use that AI, then they can perhaps see where those cost savings. Uh, you did not mention the AI in, in driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that is what everyone talks about. I mean, certainly, you know, you think of Elon Musk right away and, um, uh, uh, AI driving, um, do you, you know, he keeps on saying it's, he'll have it by the end of the year, but that seems to delay every year <laughs> once it comes about. Um, Chris has a Tesla. That would be, first of all. Um, do you think it's imminent and like, like Elon or, and then, uh, if, if one, once it comes, would not that be a, an extremely rapid and drastic, uh, hypo change in terms of the trucking industry, in terms of, you know, cars could be shared, uh, in, you know, so much better than before that, I mean, a huge industry, uh, could be uh, disrupted or changed. Um, what do you, what's your take on that? All right. So, uh, you Two questions there. I'll that are sort of different. I'll respond to them uh, in the, the order. Uh, so I think yeah, there are some cases where um, a certain task can be automated, but um, in many cases automation for a worker is great news if you're taking away a task that they hate doing and they've got tons of time now to allocate to the things that they really do enjoy doing. And then in other cases, augmentation even can be bad for workers. I mean, I was a high frequency trader at one point. Um, I was basically playing a video game that, uh, you know, 10 other people might have been in open outcry pits uh, representing each one of those, um, you know, markets at the time. So my augmentation, you know, meant less employment for other people. Uh, So when we start to think about, you know, where companies can deploy this stuff, thinking about which tasks are exposed, where can we, you know, augment in a general sense, but at a a task-based sense, start to think about um, how to how to expand the time that workers have for what they're, you know, where they're really adding value. I think the marginal product of most workers to use the economics term here uh, is going to expand in many cases. So um, that leads me to say that while there may be cost saving measures that, um, but in some cases where companies can deploy it, we shouldn't necessarily mistake what I think will be an increase in productivity for an increase in profitability overall. Like many times uh, productivity is not great for profits. Um, It can be, can be very good for consumers and the economy overall. So um, that's the the first question. The second one, when it comes to self-driving cars, um, it seems that no matter how the technology has been improving, there's always still a few residual obstacles. I think about driving around Boston in an automated way. And, um, you know, it seems like a super hard challenge. On the other hand, you know, you've heard of um, nicer weather areas where it's always sunny, um, not Philadelphia, but uh, <laughs> where, where it actually is always sunny. Uh, these self-driving cars can do a little bit better. Um, I'm still not sure how the legal and social frameworks around self-driving cars, um, that's a a different type of technology that needs to be co-invented with self-driving cars. So um, the idea that by the end of the year, we could have them everywhere. It's a slow rollout, you think, on on on, something we won't see like at the end of the year, like Elon suggests. We have seen some like robo-taxis around... um, I think, uh, you know, basically we're, we're, we're testing things out still, and I don't see a, a full-scale cross-country rollout uh, within the year, but, you know, it's a guess. I think with AI, you just have to widen confidence intervals in just about everything, so. <laughs> you know, I, I pointed out when I was with Chris yesterday on our, we, we had a, uh, 
wisdom tree meeting that um, when um, automatic elevators were developed toward the middle of last century, mm-hmm. a lot of people would not get in them. Uh, <laughs> there always used to be an elevator man. And, you know, they just didn't trust it. And they were worried that they would be trapped in it. And, you know, it took quite a bit of time before a lot of people felt comfortable going and pushing a button and going to the floor that they wanted to go. Now, there are virtually no elevator men anymore. Totally. Um, yep. But, you know, I mean, I think you can kind of use an analogy with self-driving cars in the <laughs> sense that how well, many people that. are going to be comfortable? How many people are going to be comfortable right away with uh, going through the streets of Boston or Philadelphia? That's definitely an obstacle, and it's funny you bring up. Uh, yeah, elevator operator, I think, is the only job in the the post-war era that has been fully automated. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave you, uh, thank you so much for participating. I'm going to, oh, leave my you pleasure. To, Thanks. To, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to leave you to Chris and to Jeremy, uh, cause I'm, I'm joining another, uh, call right now, but, uh, listen, we hope to, to have you on again. Oh, thanks um, so much. Great talking and, with and you. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for participate. Professor, thanks for sticking with us. And again, we're talking with Daniel Rock here at the Wharton School, live in studio on campus, Chris Canati. Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree on the line. Uh, we jumped right into the questions with Professor Siegel at limited time, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background, studying at MIT like Professor Siegel, um, <laughs> but what you, uh, interesting high-frequency trading to academic world. Talk about that, where <laughs> that came from, and a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I'm an assistant professor in the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department here. Um, effectively, I'm an economist studying the economics of AI. And what's fun about, well, there's a lot that's fun about that, but, um, you know, aside from just the technology being super cool and having a super dynamic environment to get to, um, you know, talk to people, uh, you have to sort of spin through all the different economics disciplines to understand it because it's more of a phenomenon than it is, um, you know, a discipline on its own. So um, I get to to work with lots of really, you know, interesting, super sharp people and, um, you know, keep track of something that's moving fast. So, how did I get into this stuff? Well, um, it was actually a self-driving cars uh, presentation. I was a, a grad student at MIT in 2013, and uh, John Leonard was giving a talk about self-driving cars. And he said, I think it'll, I think he said it was 30 to 40 years before they'd show up, and that Google was cheating by putting sensors in the road at the time. Um, meanwhile, there were folks in the room saying it would be five years at the time. And as a graduate student, I thought, well, that's an absolutely enormous uh, disagreement about a super important thing. Yeah. I should learn how machine learning is, uh, how it works. Um, and then, you know, how it might affect the economy. Uh, so that, that kind of kicked me off along. Um, so is my 11 year old not going to have to drive? Definitely. Is that, is that a true story? Uh, it sounds like wishful thinking on your part. Wishful but, <laughs> thinking? You're going to have to drive. Yeah. I think, uh, learning to drive, I mean, you're, you're talking to a guy, my father made me learn how to drive a stick shift. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm predisposed to think that uh, humans should probably do a little bit of driving or at least be capable of doing it if the AI system fails us in some way. Uh, yeah. But um, no, I think many things are going to change. Like our, our how we spend our time um, at work might change. Um, the long run trend to me seems like it's moving away from drudgery and the things we don't like to do at work and more towards the things that... Um, sort of are human about creativity and driving value for customers within the corporate context um, or providing better services and, um, you know, say the nonprofit context. So where did that high frequency trading job come into play? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, that was super fun. So for three years, uh, I I worked at uh, DRW Trading um, in Chicago. And, um, you know, that environment was really interesting. There's all sorts of a deployment of technology, cutting edge technology um, to, you know, execute trading strategies. And I love markets and following them and I can stare at, you know, ladders as things move for hours and a half. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, you know, one thing I noticed is a lot of the researchers around me had some sort of formal training in, in methods and I kind of wanted to learn how to answer my own questions as well. Um and having a perspective on how information changes markets and sometimes changes markets very quickly uh, helped for focusing what I was studying on. Um, but yeah, I traded fixed income, currencies, commodities. Uh, it was a it was a good time. <laughs> Lots of things changing, like twenty ten to twenty thirteen. Very interesting. 
Um, you, in, in the first conversation with the professor, you talked about productivity versus profits. I, and that productivity question is one that we come back to on the show again and again, because mm-hmm. we've been hiring all these workers yet, you know, not real, that strong of real GDP. So like what is happening in productivity trends? And, and, and you have people like Bob Gordon who says we invented all the great things in, in the world and, and we're not inventing anything new. But, and then we, we've been saying maybe one of the things that could support the economy is maybe productivity would rebound. You'd, you'd sort of lose workers. We're surprisingly, we haven't lost workers yet, but maybe we mm-hmm. would, but productivity would rebound. What's your general sense on that and, and how it ties to this whole AI story? Okay. Um, so very big question. This is a, a key question, I think, for understanding. As I think it's Paul, Paul Krugman said this, right? The you know productivity is not everything, but in the long run, it's nearly everything or something like that. I'm probably butchering this quote. But um, yeah, I, so it's been disturbing to see, say, the post-2005 uh, productivity growth slowdown. Um, it's happened across the developed world. Um, and it's a big puzzle, especially as we're seeing, you know, these enormous... Um, you know, enormously interesting and cool technologies getting built. So, um, our, uh, some colleagues at Eric Brynjolfsson, um, at Stanford, Chet Severson at UChicago and I wrote a paper about, uh, possible explanations for this. One is that Bob Gordon's right. Or, um, another version of this, uh, is that we've fished out all the good ideas and that research is just getting more costly to do. So our, our input per idea, uh, is going up. Um, I don't necessarily think that's the case. Uh, you know, one way of thinking about this is maybe we draw uh, research out of or like good ideas out of a power law distribution. And sometimes we get an, a fabulous hit and sometimes um, we get sort of so-so stuff. So the important thing in that context is to keep drawing. But it's possible that this is false hopes. Another possible explanation is the mismeasurement hypothesis that productivity growth is just mismeasured. Uh, we've got fabulous things and they're just not showing up. Enough. Like our phone, which is got everything that we used to do and it's hard to capture that. Exactly. Um, you know, so that perspective, I have some sympathy for it um, because GDP doesn't me- measure like consumer surplus. So from this, is it profitability or productivity perspective? If we have hyper competitive markets that drive costs down um, and then these benefits are sort of um, more on the consumer side and that's grown quite a lot, then um you know, even if GDP has been growing slowly, if consumers are thrilled and they're getting 97% of the value, then that's really where the story is. So folks, actually, Eric Brynjolfsson's done some work on that with uh, Avi Collis, Felix Eggers, um, Irvin Diebert, uh, and uh, and Kevin Fox. Like Saying consumer surplus. I remember this in our economics yeah, yeah. textbooks. Consumer surplus is going off the charts higher, maybe. Yeah. Like I asked my MBA students, you know, to take the Bob Gordon question, um, would you rather have to use an outhouse uh, for a year or not have access to any search technology on the internet? Um, And a meaningful proportion of them are taking the outhouse. Right. So I said, okay, well then how much of your future salary would you have to give up um, or would you pay to have access to the search? And some of them said, well, nearly all of it. So I don't necessarily buy nearly all of it. It's Hard to pay your rent if you gave up your whole salary for that. But um, it's such a huge value, right? And that's not captured in the statistics. The, now, the issue with the mismeasurement hypothesis, though, is something has to have changed. Something like this is an old story. Um, you have to be able to point to something on the GDP side that changed to make this wrong. Um, and, you know, that's that's a hard case to make. Um, the other two explanations, one is that it's rent dissipation. So the technology is real, but only a few people benefit from all of them. Um, it would have to be a really large imbalance for that to happen. I don't think that can explain the whole story. And then the approach we kind of, or the, the explanation we kind of favor in the paper is, um, wait and see it's coming. Um, wait and see positive story. And maybe this AI unleashes more of the productivity. Chris, mm-hmm. we're going to have you much more engaged in the second half of the conversation, but any high level before we re- take a first half break, any, any things you want to jump in here with comments, questions for professor Ar- Rock here. Uh, professor, hi. Um, the One of the things that is intriguing to consider is um, anytime you, we talked about it a bit yesterday with uh, Professor Siegel, anytime these new technologies come out, they sort of have this uh, deflationary benefit. And mm-hmm. it's possible to maybe think that, I mean, the classic example is your Moore's Law, where you know, you think of what it would have cost to store a terabyte of data in the 50s, 
and what it costs today and, and how you don't even think about storing that next photo, that next right. video. And so is, is, is there some element of that that you think could uh, occur within these uh, large language models and, and AI more generally? Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing acceleration of performance of these models um, at a super quick uh, clip. And um, one of the things to not make a, a mistake about uh, if you're you know operating a business or thinking about deploying this is you don't necessarily want to fight to be the developing the frontier model if it's if there's a bunch of people creating that kind of acceleration. If you sit about 10% back off the frontier as they open source this stuff, you make your code modular so you can swap in the latest and greatest, you know, your customers are going to be thrilled and you don't have to spend nearly as much. You can ride the wave, um, the whatever the new Morris Law will be named. You can ride that wave instead of having to fight it. Do you think it's going to be the Altman law for, for Sam Altman of, <laughs> of ChatGBT here of OpenAI. And, you know, I heard him quoted as, and I'm curious in your take on this quote, is, you know, people were, he was doing a conference in India and people were talking about, well, can India catch up and can they develop their own models? And he was basically saying, I understand you trying to try, but you're not going to ever get there like that. We're so far ahead. Uh, but, you know, I, I hear in some of this AI, it's how much data you have going into the systems. If they mm -hmm. got a billion people in India you know, maybe the, their models can compete or is, is open AI such a head start that nobody will be able to compete? Uh, I love this question. So um, I, the reason I love this question is because it's about what are the scarce complements in developing um, these these models? So the models, what's interesting is like the, the units within them are not especially complicated, like transformers, they get stacked, they get scaled. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's what kind of data do you have to bring to bear? Um, and lately, uh, the talent. So, you know, there's only probably a few hundred people around the world right now with the capability to, you know, really build and deploy these things at, at scale. That, um, I expect that to change. So, um, over time, I mean, the world has realized how powerful these technologies are. And it's not just the text domain. Um, I saw a paper the other day, you say DNA codes for protein. Well, it turns out potentially code can code for protein as well. So, we can design proteins like antibodies in customized ways. Um, with returns like that, I really don't expect this technology to to stay specific to um, only a few firms. Yeah, that's those are big, powerful things. And Chris and I talk about that with with hacking DNA as another main topic. It's sort of mm -hmm. interesting oversections of parallels. And and then I, I mentioned India, but uh, you can't help but China and the competition between China and the US mm -hmm. on this topic and the US trying to prevent China in many ways to get access to some of these things. Do you see any, any commentary on the geopolitical dynamics of where the AI battle is? Uh, that's hard. I mean, I don't want to get too far out of my skis here where it's uh, not something I, I, I know a ton about. Um, but, um, what, what I'll say is I think these technologies are sort of similar to the internet, um, but in its early stages. So, um, if you imagine large language models or generative AI or just machine learning, um, writ large as being part of the substrate of the, the sorts of software we build. Um, than to think that it won't exist in in all sorts of different contexts is, uh, I think, kind of denying how how high the returns are and um, how exciting the applications are. So I I think yeah there will be versions of all of these things in China and India. I mean those are billions of people. How could how could we not have this technology be accessible to them? That that would be that seems like a missed opportunity. Chris, jump in. So. Uh, Dan, I, I wanted to think about when, when you said, what are the scarce complements? Mm -hmm. um, data, talent. But I noticed you didn't say, and it's particularly noticeable today, the professor mentioned uh, NVIDIA as sort of one of the key events, you know, in, in recent uh, months here that's driving markets seemingly higher and higher and higher, maybe not this week, but in general. So is there a reason that you put the ship maybe in a different category because obviously to Jeremy's point, it's clear that the US government saying China can't turn around, snap their fingers and have the equivalent of an H100 uh, mm -hmm. that NVIDIA sells uh, just like that. Uh, but at the same time, given enough time, resource, money, 
maybe they can develop something with similar capability. I'm, I'm just curious how you think of uh, the chips in uh, the equation there. Right, a short-term versus a long-term kind of uh, difference. I think, you know, you can have durable competitive advantage from talent or data, um, but it's it's harder to have that with uh, with just the chips um, because the world has seen, yeah, the, the chips are a super high-return thing. I, I think NVIDIA makes a fantastic product right now, and it's clearly leading the market, right? But... Um, there are those out there trying to say, you know, come up with alternatives to CUDA, um, which helps you, you know, train these models and is one of the main reasons for NVIDIA's success. Um, you could see AMD coming up with alternatives here or, you know, perhaps a new entrant of some kind. So um, I think what's great about the chips right now, if you are concerned about restricting access in some way, shape or form um, or monitoring it, uh, the chips are a great like bottleneck to, to focus on uh, for that purpose. Am I hearing uh, a, a that, long short trade coming up here of, of short NVIDIA <laughs> long some other things because everything is so much cheaper versus NVIDIA? Uh, no investment advice. No comments? From me. No yeah. comments from the Wharton <laughs> professor. <laughs> from your trading days. <laughs> I didn't trade equities, so again. <laughs> now, commodities, if you want to talk about corn. Uh, we got a different... Corn and wheat in yeah. a big uptrend over here. Yep. Um, so, yeah, well, actually, on, on that subject, you can definitely use deep learning to improve agricultural efficiency, too. So, um, you know, the- we had a farm. Actually, what's funny about that, I don't know if you listened to last week's episode, we had a farmland discussion on last week's episode. Oh, cool. I didn't hear that now. And they talked about some of the investments from a private equity side that they were making to talk about, or, or I guess it's venture capital side, that they were making some investments to do improve efficiencies and all the rest. We, we, we talked about that last week. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've heard of people taking drones and vision systems to like target where you deploy, um, you know, weed killer, like in a field so that you don't like just spread it all over everything and have that, you know, get into the soil and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just one of many examples. Or even monitoring the fields to figure out like better information for traders. You know, you, you can say, okay, here's what the crop yield is in this area of Iowa. And then you get better price discovery, more efficient markets, all good news. It's interesting. Uh, a lot of what you see is more and more of these things become like uh, data collecting hardware uh, mm -hmm. as, as the car. Because we were talking about self-driving cars as one example. They don't necessarily drive themselves yet, but if you think of what, a Tesla today is doing. It's going around and collecting maybe four terabytes of data on all sorts of different things every single day, beaming it back to the mothership. Somehow it's being used to learn. You think of a, a John Deere. I, I would imagine their dream is every customer not only buys a tractor or various other equipment, but they subscribe to uh, the software package mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis. So now every month, they're storing in the John Deere cloud, wherever that might be, all the information, because e each vehicle that's going out of a garage is, is now becoming a, a gigantic data collector, a sponge, and these models, at least in theory, are going to learn and learn and learn because of the data, like you said, one of the durable competitive advantages. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, from a business perspective, that uh, turning your users into data collectors to build better products using AI that's uh, absolutely one people should take down for their playbooks. As, as a researcher, ha have you used it to improve your research methods or what, what have you done to, to use it to improve your research methods? Oh, totally. Um, so I code in a few different languages. I'm better at some than others, uh, but across all of them. What's your best? Uh, probably Python. I, I do most of my work in Python. Um, I still don't trust Python for running regressions at the end if I'm you know doing that. Uh, because the standard errors aren't right. So I'll use Stata or R for that. Hmm. Um, but then for visualization, I mean, I'm terrible at visualization and I can just describe to GPT what I want now and it spits out uh, code to do that. Uh, so on the coding side, um, I put, yeah, I put, uh, turned on Copilot. So sometimes it sort of eerily suggests things that you were going to write even when you weren't planning on it. That's That's been great. Um, there's a, a terminal app called Warp Terminal um, that I can ask in natural language, like what's the command line, um, you know, what's the, what do I have to put in the command line to get this thing to happen? And um, yeah, basically it gives you good answers or things that are close enough that you can change uh, and get them to run. Um, I don't write regular expressions anymore. 
like all these things. So that's great. Um, on the writing side too, um, you know, to, to check that I understood something like, you know, if I'm doing like peer review, right? Like I can read a paper, I write up my summary, I write up like my notes and stuff. And then I might take like the intro to the paper and ask GPT to summarize it too. And I can look through and see, oh, did I miss something in the paper? Do I have to go back and re- reread it? Which is something that was a manual effort for me uh, before. So those are kind of like small changes, but they add up. So, you know, it might be like 10% more productive in each one of these tasks. And then, but those were like the bottlenecks. So I end up being like 25 to 30% more productive than a whole bunch of things. You know, result. I think as parents and then also you as an educator, you think about, right, like my, my kids the other night, they're now playing around with giving speeches at dinner, <laughs> you know, using ChatGBT. They made these eloquent speeches about how great for Father's Day, you know, a great <laughs> oh, dad I was. But the, how are you thinking about it for both, uh, you know, what your kids and students are going to do using mm-hmm. that? And how you and how do you either train them to use it more productively, but also then knowing that they might be using the stuff for stuff that you wanted them to do? Right, right. So, um, yeah, my my MBA class where we teach you know digital strategy and information economics. So broadly, when you have an information asymmetry problem, like I ask the the students to write like a two page memo before every class on what they read. So there's an information asymmetry problem with GPT where they might have written that with GPT. Um, so there's two solutions to that. You can either do monitoring um, and see what people are doing, or you can offer a contract that suggests, you know, hey, you can make your choices, but I'm going to select um, into what I want here. So in this case, that contract, I do both. I say, okay, we're going to take your memos, and then I'm going to no longer give an A for correct answers. I give A's for correct and original answers. Um where originality is determined from uh, by the distance from whatever GPT's answer is. So I use large language models to compute a distance from GPT's answer. And um, well, now I'm giving away the the game a little bit, but I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I did. We have to listen to behind the markets. Only the only the sharpest students will get this exactly. Right. So here's a bonus. This is another contract. If you listen to behind the markets, you could do better in my class. Uh, so. Um, what I what I did was I graded the memos without ever looking at the distance um, because I wasn't sure I, I trusted it. And um, the really interesting thing was that the correlation between the originality and my scores for their grades was nearly like perfect. Hmm. So in that case, there's a bad world where uh, they pretend to work and I pretend to grade them. Um, but there's also a good one where... Um, they learn to use GPT uh, to produce like really interesting original thinking. And I think that's what we're starting to see. Um, so I've been very impressed by the students and the work they're doing. I think more of these things we're going to experiment with them. Like this year, I'm thinking about building uh, a chat bot that uh, has all of the syllabus materials loaded into it. So you can communicate with the articles and the authors uh, in awesome. virtual form. And then, yeah, it should be pretty fun. Right. So, um, what I might do to add an additional contractual layer to their memos is load their memos up into the system too, so they can talk with each other in virtual format. So if you don't write a good memo, then you're not going to have uh, good conversations, fake conversations with your peers. I mean, I think about the real world and, and I, I, I saw somebody on Twitter. I mean, I'm an avid Twitter, Twitter oh, yeah. consumer. So and, am I. <laughs> and so some people, somebody was talking about how they were doing a job interview and, and something that should take three hours somebody came, turned it back in like 10 minutes, knowing so they, they knew that you used mm-hmm. ChatGPT. It was like, is that a disqualifying event? It's like, no, this is the real world. If they came back with something that should take three hours, they did 10 minutes, that's the exact employee you want to hire. Like, yeah. not somebody that you don't want to hire. Like, I, to me, that's a very crystal clear answer of, you know, they mm-hmm. used it and it and they, they're better off for having used it. And, and so think about using it in the yeah. classroom that way. To me, it seems like you need to teach people how to do these things productively and, and make them the most productive employees possible. Absolutely. And, um, you know, to extend what you were saying there, like if you come in and uh, you can do this whole thing in three or four minutes and, you know, the employer doesn't feel like that's a good way to evaluate the talent. Well, the employer's got to change. And likewise, there are places in the educational system where like we do want students to learn how to write and we do want to have them do it without GBT because there's skills that, you know, it's the same way that we require students to learn arithmetic, right? Like there's advantages to that. Um, that has to happen again in the classroom. Like the, I think the only solution for that is is monitoring. So um, two paths. One is 
you know, all things, all sorts of new things are possible with these technologies, learn to run with them. And then the other is for the areas where we do need, you know, to have some hard skills sort of put in, in students' heads, um, you know, that's on the teacher in the classroom environment to get that to happen. So it's funny, as, as you guys were talking about this, I was thinking uh, to my college days, early 2000s, and you, you're writing a paper back then. The idea of, say, using Wikipedia for a college paper back then, you, you couldn't do it. You, right, right. Yeah. Automatic, automatic yes. Now you look at Wikipedia, it's probably one of the best sources out there. And it's funny, a skill, at least in the early 2000s, not, not that long ago in the scheme of things, a skill seemed to be that they wanted you to go physically to the library and like actually find the books and like use the journals and, and go through that whole process, which it was a process. And it feels like today we've gone beyond the idea of say the physical location of information. And, and now it's not necessarily about that process in particular. It's more about, okay, now we assume you have all the information mm -hmm. and access all the information and I like what you were saying about originality. It's now about packaging the information, making those new connections. And it'll be interesting to see. I was listening to Mark Andreessen yesterday on a, on a podcast, and he was saying how over time, what's going to be notable is the IQ equivalent of these models, at least in theory, might go up and up and up. Mm -hmm. When you're starting to see, he, he on his uh talk, he would refer to, you know, the quote unquote Einstein level, the 160 or so IQ. Now you think about that and you say relativity as a concept, absolutely incredible, groundbreaking at the time. You wonder what's the potential of these models to come up with something that no human has ever thought of in the past. It, it's fascinating to think of, obviously, since we've never thought of it as a whole species, it's, it's impossible to know, but it's, a, it's just a, a curious question to consider as we move forward here. Yeah, in some cases, that's already happened, um, you know, with human input. But um, I saw a presentation by a computational chemist uh, a few years ago, and he said, yeah, we're using deep learning to design new molecules. So they discovered a blue pixel that, like, helps your phone screen last longer. Um, they also, he also said he wants to make batteries you can drink um, which is wild uh, to start with. But then yeah. the the thing that really shocked me was he said, yeah, cockroach pheromones look promising on that dimension. So I've got, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I, I wouldn't love to drink cockroach pheromones, but if you can use them as you a battery. Cockroach pheromones. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's a totally new way of doing discovery. Um in many ways, the engineering is ahead of the science. So, you know, that's an exciting place to be. If, if you try to... Unbelievable. If, if you try to distill this into how you, th you know, as, as this is not investment advice at all, but as you would think personally, put some capital to work. What are the types of things you would think are interesting investment stories today in this space, things that are less interesting to you, uh, if, if you were to put some of your own capital to work? Sure. Um, I'll try not to think too hard about what's actually in my portfolio versus <laughs> what uh, what I think is a good idea. So, um, yeah, I, I think looking for data assets and where companies have been successful deploying early machine learning systems is a good place to start. Um, there are a few firms that figured this out and some work that I'm doing uh, with uh, Sunny Tambe and uh, Barry Wang, um, who's a PhD student here. Well, Sunny's in, we're all in uh, OID here at Wharton. Um, we found that uh, it seems like the companies that were good at implementing earlier technological waves get a little bit of a, a faster implementation cycle for the next one or a, a cheaper implementation cycle for the next one. So um, companies that were good at deep learning before might be good at generative AI uh, in the in the short run uh, from like the big publicly traded space. So, um, you know, let me think of some cases where I've seen some surprises. Uh, so like Home Depot has a deep learning research team and they put out really good stuff. So you don't think you know, Home Depot for AI. 
Not necessarily, right? Not uh, right off the bat. I mean, NVIDIA is a big name there. Everybody knows that one. Um, you know, obviously Microsoft and, you know, big tech. Google's a massive leader in AI. Uh, but then there's these like pockets of other, you know, other firms where they've built out capabilities that are really interesting. So um, as a cut for building a portfolio, I might think about doing that. Huh. I wonder, the, the, the insurance industry, have you seen anything there? The, re- the reason I say it is just like mm-hmm. when you're thinking of pricing, you're thinking of outcomes, predicting things. It seems like deep learning and AI should be all over that. Um, yeah, I think uh, so. We found in our paper that the insurance industry is a lot of exposure to this. And I don't think that's news to them. Um, you know, there's a yeah, number yeah. of companies there that are, are you know, making... I, I had a fender bender a couple of years ago and I was stunned to find out I could just photograph it and send it to them. And then the claims processing happened pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, this is a, a major insurance carrier too. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting to see what they're pulling off. It, um, it sounds like you have a lot of interesting research projects, a lot of interesting co-authors and some of these papers. What are you most excited to be working on now? Final closing minutes. Uh, it's still, uh, yeah, this generative AI question. So, um, you know, where is it going to affect firms? Um, that's probably something I'd, I'd like to dig into next. Um, there's a, a really nice paper. Um, uh, Gregor Schubert and his, uh, his co-authors at UCLA um, took some of our methods and looked at generative AI and, and firm value. Um, one of his co-authors, Andrea Eisfeld, have been following her work for a long time. Fantastically cool stuff. So um, I'm interested in exploring this talent question too. Um to what extent does that bottleneck in talent change how these things diffuse um, and sort of open source strategy around uh, generative AI? So um, that's probably the next set of questions, big questions I'm working on. And then, of course, you know, I'm trying to just get older work finished and, and out the door as, as academics must do. Um, but this is, yeah, those, those core questions around talent, around uh, the value of data, and the improvement of the algorithms. I mean, this is the same story we saw the last decade, but now it's just turbocharged with all the cool applications. This has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming down from upstairs in the building to, to our <laughs> studio first time. Where can people find you and your research? Uh, so uh, for sure, you can find my stuff on my website, uh, danielinerock.com. That's just my middle name. Um, uh, or the Wharton um, you know, website stuff. And um I tend to post things on Archive or SSRM. Beautiful. Chris, thanks for joining us. Chris Tooks in the soundboard. You can follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.